Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's Summer Mixtape 2021. So excited to be here with Judy Wu Dominic. Um, Judy, thanks for being on with us today. Glad to be here. Thanks, Zach. Yeah. Um, so Judy and I actually connected through a mutual friend named Sam Wan. Um, Sam, many of you will know that are watching this. If you were here last year for Summer Mixtape, Sam was one of our, I would call him like a fan favorite um, that he was on. Everybody really loved him. And so I reached out to him about connecting with folks that might be good for this summer's mixtape. And um, he basically was like, I think I got a bunch of people. And then he was like, on second thought, it should just be Judy and uh, she's the best. <laughs> and so uh, we were able to connect. And then I found out during that first conversation that you actually have worked with Tasha Morrison, another mutual friend and previous summer mixtape guest on the Be The Bridge Guide and have done a bunch of work with her. And we actually have two Be The Bridge groups going right now that are, I think, about a year long. So they're kind of wrapping up soon. So Tasha and Be The Bridge have been a huge influence, and you already, without knowing it, have been a huge influence that's on our right. church family. So um, right. I just think that's awesome. Well, if you don't know much about Judy, Judy Wu Dominic is an essayist, poet, and musician focused on equipping Christians with the tools they need to engage more thoughtfully, lovingly, and effectively across societal divisions, which we'll talk about in just a minute. She was born and raised in Houston, Texas by immigrant parents from Taiwan, her work has been published in Christianity Today, Faithfully Magazine, Good Grit Magazine, Fathom Magazine, and A Moment to Breathe, 365 Devotions That Meet You in Your Everyday Mess, and the Encouraged Devotional Bible. You are a prolific writer. Um, Judy holds a Bachelor of Arts in History from Rice, a Master of Science in Epidemiology. I would not have known how to say that word until the last <laughs> 14 months. But I now everybody knows. Now everybody knows. From UT. That's UT Austin, right? Uh, UT Houston. Actually. UT Houston. Oh, mm -hmm. wow. Uh, it's still it's still cool. It's still cool. Uh, and a Master of Science in uh, Physician Assistant Studies from Baylor College of Medicine. So that was your bio and a little bit about how we met. Uh, but I would love for people to be able to hear part of your story, kind of how you got to where you are today and how you got passionate specifically about the things we just talked about. Yeah, there are so many moving parts, uh, and so it's difficult for me to, to narrow it down. Sure. But um, I, I would say, you know, being raised in a pretty typical immigrant uh, parent home, um, but I was born in the United States, and so, you know, that bicultural experience, uh, trying to learn how to navigate two very different universes and uh, not realizing that that would result in me being bicultural, mm. you know, in, in addition to bilingual <clears throat> picking up a couple other languages along the way just for fun. <laughs> um, but, you know, I was always on this trajectory, be a doctor, be a lawyer, be a, like, you know, upper middle class professional of some sort. And so uh, that was very formative in my childhood. And um, as you can tell, I have many academic degrees that reflect that ethos, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think uh, at heart, I've always been a, a creative person. I've always liked to write poetry and, and write and think about things. Uh, most of what I write is nonfiction, okay. um, cultural analysis, um, theological reflections, that sort of thing. And I always kind of did that on the side after I became a Christian, uh, which was in college. 
uh, I got involved in a crew my freshman year of college, and um, they introduced me to the four spiritual laws. And uh, I, I was brought up going to church. Okay. Um, and so I was exposed to the Bible and Jesus and various teachings, you know, about Easter and Christmas. And, um, and so all that was familiar to me. I just didn't really understand what the gospel message was. Hmm. And I feel I, I felt like I found the answer in the four spiritual laws. Yeah. And, you know, part of my story is discovering that that wasn't really the full gospel either, sure. yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and um, and just kind of deconstructing, you know, the, the whole idea of salvation being going to heaven when we die right. and having all of that fall apart and um, become much more like filled in for me yeah. as a Christian, as I study the scriptures. So. Um, I think that that has all um, been incorporated in, into my writing, but um, for the bulk of my adult life, though, I was, you know, if I wasn't in graduate school, I was actually working as a physician assistant okay. at MD Anderson Cancer Center, wow. and I did that for seven and a half years in um, thoracic surgery, so super intense job, yeah. taking care of primarily lung cancer, mm. esophageal cancer patients, um, and being... Uh, on the floor, in the clinic, sometimes in the operating room. And then I met my husband um, in gosh, my early 30s, mm -hmm. almost mid-30s. And um, that is, let's see, he moved to Houston. Uh, he was living in Austin at the time. And then uh, we moved out of Houston to San Antonio, lived there for three years, and then moved to Atlanta. So in the course of all these various moves, there was also opportunities for different kinds of spiritual formation. Yeah. Um, Cause it's kind of like you get plucked out of this very fixed life mm. that you're in, uh, that I was in. Um, I was at part of an evangelical Presbyterian church in Houston there for 14 years, had been there since I was in college, um, totally into reformed theology, you know, yeah. and, and it was um, this series of moves um, ultimately to Atlanta that got me to evaluate, you know, what uh, is going on when I'm now in white spaces and suddenly I feel Asian again. Hmm. And it's, it's a funny thing to say that because I think for a long time I didn't let myself let myself feel Asian. Yeah. I was very um, committed to assimilating into white spaces. Um, I don't think I thought of it in those terms at all. Sure. I think I was just trying to be like the people around me that I respected and yeah. loved and yeah. had relationships with, right? Yeah. Um, but when I moved to Atlanta and I had, you know, no roots, you know, hadn't gone to college with people, and I didn't have any common experiences with people, I found it extraordinarily difficult to break in hmm. to social groups. Yeah. And in fact, I felt very invisible, like over and over and over again, whether it was in the choir or the play groups that I was trying to participate in and, had you experienced that, like, growing up, like, before college, like, you know, early years, that same kind of feeling? I, I did. In a middle school in particular, I think this was kind of a, a defining point for me was in seventh grade, was uh, that in my school, all the popular kids seemed to be white. And so I wanted to be like them. And those were, you know, the boys from that group, were, they were the people we had crushes on, you yeah. know, things like that. And, and there was one time when two of my friends, who my closest friends in middle school were Asian-American. Okay. 
and um, they were walking by um, their neighborhood. Actually, one of the girls lived in the neighborhood. They were walking to the pool or back or something, and they happened to pass the house of one of the boys that one of the girls actually had a crush on. Yeah. And he, he, they were really excited, but when he saw them, he said, I know you guys have crushes on me, but y'all chinks don't have to stalk me. Wow. wow. And I remember... I was not there, but they told me the story because it happened over the weekend. When they told me the story, suddenly it was like, oh, I'm Asian, and they know it too. Oh, wow, wow. <laughs> and, you know, it's a, it's a very strange thing to say. It's not like I didn't know I was Asian, right? right? But it's suddenly this sense of I'm other to them, yeah. and yeah. they see me this way. But I didn't see myself this way, but yeah. now I can't help it. Hmm. And I think that that made me want to even more kind of double down and be proved that I was worthy of being one of them or yeah. being counted as, you know, includable. Yeah. Which is probably something that played into my decision to be in a predominantly white church after I became a Christian, gotcha. you know? And, yeah. and so, but we moved to Atlanta and we had, I know it was a, supposed to be a five minute. No, this is great. <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah, you're good. It kind of ties into everything yeah. we're going to talk about. Um, I had this moment where there was so much consistent exclusion and sense of invisibility that I just got worn out. Mm. I really, really did. The lack of eye contact, the lack of interest in asking me questions, even though I would ask questions trying yeah. to get to know people. Yeah. Just the, the complete lack of interest, you know. Yeah. Um, and then, like, uh, being interrupted in conversations where I would be talking to someone and somebody else would come up and they would just start their own conversation and I would just fall off, wow. <laughs> you know, things like that. And I'm just like, I think my bad social skills, I don't know what to call it. You know, it just keeps happening, you know, and, um, or people would have their conversations and they wouldn't kind of bring me up to speed on what they were talking about. Right. So I was always kind of standing there as a, a witness and feeling like I didn't belong there. I this breakdown. You know, and, and I just was, was crying and I just said, I don't, I don't still think I can take this anymore. Yeah. I was telling my husband. And so that's when we started talking about, um, finding a multi-ethnic church. I just say, let's try something new, yeah. you know? And that was really the beginning of, of an important journey for me because the church that we attended, it was Atlanta, of course. Uh, like the black Mecca yeah. and um, it has a very strong and robust um, black American culture and, and middle class, upper class, upper middle class as well yeah. as um, marginalized communities. So there's tremendous diversity yeah. um, of all kinds yeah. there. Um, I, I would say the Asian American and Asian immigrant community were very small though. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's definitely like living in diaspora versus living on the West Coast in Los right. Angeles, you sure, know, yeah. where you feel like you're part of the majority. Um, but this gave me the opportunity to face, uh, like kind of recognize that there was anti-Black prejudice in me mm. because I had never been around Black communities. Okay. Um, I have been around, I haven't had Black friends. And so... Like many people, well, I have black friends, so therefore I can't be racist <laughs> against black people. But that's very different. You know, when you have one black friend um, at work and another black friend from graduate school and, you know, um, 
they're individuals, right. you know, but then you don't even realize that you carry all these sort of um, broad sweeping um, beliefs hmm. about the community at large, right? My friend is an exception sure. to what I believe to be about these communities. Yeah. Those are all latent, but they're not easily identified until right. you're actually in a situation that forces you to see yeah. something different. And yeah. so that's what happened to me in Atlanta when we joined this church. And it, it really took a year of kind of just being around different people before I was like, like unpacked all that stuff inside me, yeah. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, you mean you don't think this? And it's like, no, why would you think I think that? I'm like, I don't know, maybe because I'm <laughs> ignorant. <laughs> you know? And and I'm like, I'm really sorry that all that's there. It's yeah. it's ugly. I want to repent and I want to have like real relationships. So, um, and then while we were there, uh, it was when the trial of, um, what's his first name, Zimmerman, the oh, guy George. Who killed, George Zimmerman, yeah, the guy who killed Trayvon Martin. The verdict was issued, and um, I had been operating under this very romantic um, joy that black and white people could worship together, hmm. and and it was so wonderful. And and um, look at how awesome we are all together here. And the minute that verdict was released, it was like separation mm. in the congregation people were posting very different things on facebook yeah. hurting each other's feelings saying really ugly things to each other in the comment sections mm. and we were hosting a group my okay. husband and i yeah. and so we we're like what are we gonna do yeah. <laughs> you know um and and when people came to group um i think it was on like a wednesday or thursday night um and the verdict came out earlier in the week i can't remember yeah. but nobody wanted to talk yeah I'm surprised anybody even came, yeah, you know, really. yeah. <laughs> um, and nobody wanted to talk. And, and that's when I said, we have to help people figure out how to talk about this, yeah. you know, and that's uh, when I started writing specifically about race. Wow. Yeah. Um, it was very, it flowed out of the reality of community, yeah. uh, a very painful place and trying to, trying to navigate that and help other people navigate that. We, we were, just novices. Like, yeah. I don't know what we're doing. Uh -huh. <laughs> I do not even say stuff. I'm going to say something wrong. I'm going to offend someone, you know, yeah. but these are people we love. And so it's, it's it wasn't ideology, right. you know, right. it was really like peacemaking among God's people yeah. face to face. And I saw how important that was. Oh, it's so beautiful. I love that it was birthed out of um, not just an experience, but a, a necessity, right. To yes. keep um, a, a family of God, together during a really difficult yeah. thing. Um, and I, everything that I've read of yours in our conversations, um, you just bleed like authenticity like that. And I, I have a, just a ton of respect for you because you, you lead and write that way. Um, and I think that, you know, it gives so much power to your words and work. So I appreciate that for you uh, sharing it with Thank us. You. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, <clears throat> there has been, Obviously, the last 14 months in the COVID-19 pandemic have been difficult for all of us for a number of different reasons, um, but there has been a special burden placed on AAPI folks, um, Asian American and Pacific Islanders, um, and there's been a sharp rise in hate crimes, right? And the, right. the group Stop AAPI Hate, uh, they recorded 3,800 hate incidents between March 2020 and February of this year, so about 11-month mm -hmm. time frame. 
Um, and then just a couple of months ago in Atlanta, on March 16th, you had eight people murdered and three Asian-owned spas. Um, yeah. And another survey I was just looking at uh, earlier this week showed that 76% of Asian Americans reported having experienced or seen hate crimes, harassment, and discrimination during the pandemic. And so I, I just really wanted to ask you, what have the last 14 months been like for you and for other AAPI folks that you know? Yeah. So what's interesting for me personally is I have not received um, this kind of treatment for like myself. Yeah. Um, but I've heard so many stories. Mm. And even if it hasn't happened to me personally, every story I hear affects me personally. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, my niece, who who's in, in um, high school and plays on a like a community soccer league, okay. um, she who was just joking around with her, her teammates. And, um, you know, one of them had like broken her leg earlier in the season or whatever. She was, well, at least I didn't break my leg. And her, her teammates said, well, at least I didn't start COVID. You know, it just, when you least expect it, you know, these, these sorts of statements just kind of come up and my niece had to say, you know, it's really uncool. Uh, Can we talk about that? And she was like, I don't want to talk about it. Like, no, we need to talk about it because yeah. we're friends. And if we can't talk about it, nobody can talk about right. it. So she made her talk about I'm it. I'm impressed. Yeah, your niece. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's like, it's pretty good for a 15 year old. Yeah, you know? that's incredible. Um, and, and, you know, she, she wasn't mean about it, but she was like, that, why would you say that? That's so hurtful. Yeah. You know, where'd that come from? Yeah. Um, and, you know, at first she was like, I don't know. I'm not racist. It's like, let's just talk about it. You know? Well, you're right. Like she's, and your niece is right. That, that girl is hearing that somewhere. Yeah. Right. She's hearing it. Right. Yeah. And, and the power of, yeah. um, all of the rhetoric around COVID-19 related to, um, Asian people has been, uh, horrific from the highest levels of leadership in our country and other countries. And so you, right. you know, that stuff comes from somewhere. It does. It does. And, and, you know, um, I was just reading about, um, I think because I'm in Texas, you know, I, I read stories in Texas. There was a Vietnamese, a French Vietnamese restaurant owner in San Antonio. He had his restaurant vandalized and, you know, it was like they sprayed Kung flu and ramen noodle flu and Tommy and I hope you die, you know, and he's getting like threats by phone and, and on the, on his in- restaurant Instagram account, mm. like, I hope it burns down. I mean, this is just completely insane. Yeah. And, Somebody called him and just found off his home address and said, I'm coming for you. Oh, my God. You know, and, and so, you know, I have a really good friend who, after um, the Atlanta shootings, she um, she was just really upset. And she said her, her mom, she's Korean, um, her mom, who lives in Chicago, won't leave the house. Wow. And she says, and she has been here for decades. Yeah. She said, if it keeps getting worse. I'm going to go back. I'm going to move back to Korea, Wow! you wow. know? And, um, my friend is like, I'm going to buy a gun. I'm like, you can't buy a gun. You know what are you talking about? You know? And, and people are taking self-defense classes. I mean, this is real. Yeah. Like people have this sense of terror. You know, you talk about like you read in the scriptures and the terror of so-and-so fell upon the people, yes. you know, um, yes. or Psalm six of my bones are shaking with terror, you know, at the beginning. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, just this sense of vulnerability. And I think it's, it's an interesting mix because so much of our experience in the United States is uh, defined by invisibility. Like I was sharing with you, the right. social invisibility, 
you know, you walk into a store, like I, I wanted to um, get some help with stationery. Uh, when I was getting married, I wanted to like uh, look at stationery options for invitations and yeah. the woman wouldn't help me, you know? And she was like, well, do you even know what you like? You know, just the way she talked to me, I'm like, well, I, can you show me? She was like, why don't you go figure it out, honey? And then you can come back, <laughs> you know? So <laughs> it's, it's that, I guess it's that invisibility. Like you don't see me as a person. Right. Okay. And then suddenly now yeah. we're hyper visible, oh, yeah. but in this really negative way. Yeah. Right. And so it's this odd cocktail of invisibility, the pain of invisibility that we carry, carry chronically mixed with the terror of hyper visibility mm. of now, you right. know, and it's causing people a lot of stress, yeah. um, physical stress, mental stress, you know, and, um, and trauma, it's this sort of nebulous trauma that hangs over your head. Yeah. You know, am I going to be targeted? Um, so, I don't know. And every story I hear also kind of tugs at old scars, right? Mm. Oh man, it just reminds me of when I was discriminated against, you know, in, in this other setting, yeah. you know? Yeah. So it's this kind of constant tugging at old scars. Yeah. Um, and I told a friend of mine, March of last year, she asked me if I would write an essay for her about, you know, this cultural moment for Asian Americans. And I said, yes, I'll write something. I still haven't written it because I am still trying to figure out yeah. what I want to say, you know, that because so many people are saying things, right? Yeah. And I feel like there's a lot of things being said already. I, I really am still processing what does it mean to experience this as a Christian, you know, yeah. um, and to process it in a Christianly way. Yeah. You know, what does that mean? Um Beyond what we can do, like in terms of advocacy, activism, raising awareness, anti-racism, yeah. all of those things are useful. But I think that there's there's more, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I've been reading a book called Epidemics. Um, oh, let me pull it up real quick. Epidemic: The Impact of Germs and Their Power Over Humanity by Joshua Loomis. One of the things that um, I, I like to do as a, I'm not a historian, right? I feel like for me to claim that I'd have to have a PhD and actually write history books. I was a history major, so yeah. I have an interest in history. I'm a history enthusiast. Yeah. Um, one of the things that is important um, for the work that I do is really kind of doing some excavation. Because hmm. I feel like so many of us, especially moderns, live so in the present. Right. And um, we're not aware of all the things that have come before us, yeah. right? And so um, I, was, I was reading in this book and um, specifically about the Black Plague. And, you know, you have like, well, even before I get into the Black Plague, uh, the Black Death, I'm going to talk about like something that happened um, in 2009, which was the H1N1 swine flu yeah. epidemic. Yeah. Yeah. So, um you know, I think I was at Lowe's, uh, gosh, last year sometime looking at something. Uh, this was kind of fairly early on in the, okay. in the pandemic. And <laughs> I approached this one shelf to get something, and there was this couple there, and they were masked. And as I approached, they went, backed <laughs> 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 up on six feet. And I was like, I was wearing a mask too. You yeah. know, I'm like, I 
don't have COVID, right. <laughs> you know. Um, and that's probably the most like kind of dramatic uh, experience that I've had. You know, I haven't had anyone, you know, tell me to go back to my country or anything uh, this time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that um, it's also important to see that this is sort of a, a universal human response, a sinful response to um, scarcity and to fear mm-hmm. and to pestilence. Yeah. Okay, so um, I was reading about um, when all these infections started to happen in 2009, particularly in Mexico, and it originated maybe on a pig farm. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it was a novel influenza A uh, flu. And it started to kind of spread to other parts of the world. Okay, so there's this, this really interesting story. There's The soccer team from Guadalajara, Mexico, called Chivas, they traveled to Chile that May uh, for a um, for a cup game against the Everton, the, the Chilean team. Okay. And that their team experienced discrimination from the locals when they went shopping. You know, wow. Hector Reynoso, who was a defender, he said, you know, in the marketplace, people got out of our way. They covered their mouths. They ridiculed us. Wow. You know, and then, um, you know, these are all people who would be considered Latino, right? right, right. Um, and so... And then during the game, uh, the Chilean forward, Sebastian Penko, kept making swine, swine flu jabs at Reynoso. And, and then he eventually called him a leper. And he, that was like the last draw. So Reynoso spit and sneezed on him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. And, and then the Chilean press that was covering the incident referred to Reynoso's action as germ warfare. Wow. You know, and what's interesting is that eventually uh, Chile... Um, became known as the South American country with the most cases of H1N1. Wow. Okay, so when this happened, um, you have the story of like a, a tour bus carrying 43 Chileans traveling um, through Argentina, and they go through this uh, town called Godoy Cruz, and the, the locals start to stone the bus. Because oh they're like, gosh. you're carrying... Wow. You know? And and the police had to disperse the mob with rubber pellets. Oh my god. Like rubber bullets, excuse me. And and so, you know, this is not like a new phenomenon. Yeah. yeah. And it's not necessarily a, a phenomenon exclusive to Asian Americans. Sure. It's just in this time, in this place, because of the unique source of the pandemic, because of Trump's rhetoric, because of you know, various things because of the actions of the um, Chinese Communist Party and the the just criticisms of those kinds of things and people's inability to tell the difference between a government versus people who look different, you know, um, that whole milieu, uh, people with Asian features are being targeted, you know. And so... Like, how do we think about this? Right. And then, okay, so this is the part where I wanted to go back to. That is, I, I picked the H1N1 swine flu example because I feel like there's so many parallels, right? Yeah. You know, the whole, like, covering your faces or get away from me, you're, you're, you're infectious. I mean, like, the, there was a, a young man who wielded a knife and he sliced, you know, a dad and his two young boys at Sam's Club in Midland, Texas. Oh and he accused them, you know, it was, it was a family from Myanmar and he... He said, well, I thought they were Chinese and that they were spreading COVID. Oh. That was his, his you know, thought. Those are terrifying 
yeah. worth of stories because then you feel like you're constantly having to make sure there's nobody about to charge at you with right. a knife right. when you're at Sam's Club yeah. or Costco or Walmart or wherever, yeah. right? And this is not how you want to live. No. Um, it's not how anyone wants to live. But, um, you know, if you, if this, it has something, you know, started in Mexico, then the Mexicans get, you know, targeted when they go to Chile yeah. or, you know, yeah. or if the Chileans get a high account, then they get targeted when they go to Argentina, you know. Um, people, when they get afraid, do crazy things. Yes. And it's, it's kind of like, even if they didn't have uh, overt prejudices, like they're not saying, you know, you people are always this way. Right. Um, there are always latent prejudices, right? right. And it's right. kind of like if, if a doctor taps right under your knee in a particular place, you're going to get the patellar re reflex, yeah. you know? It's kind of like that. When the yeah. circumstances are, are a certain way, when there's scarcity, when there's hunger, when there's pestilence, when there's fear of death or illness, those latent sort of prejudices and, and enmities, they rise to the surface. Yeah. And and anyone can get targeted. Right. I want to make this even more personal for Christians because if you go back and look at the Black Death in the 1340s, um, there was really a lot of tragedy around the way that Christians treated Jews. Mm. You know, back then, I think you could say the majority of people were part of the, the Catholic Church, right. or at least Christianized in some way. Um, and this was because, you know, starting from uh, the reign of Theodosius, who followed Constantine, um, you know, he made Christianity the stand, the official you know, religion of the empire, right. Theodosius did in 380. And after that, they actually um, made paganism illegal. Yeah. And so it was like this Christian supremacy. This was a huge switch right. from the previous reality, which was persecution of Christians, right. right? Okay. So now Christianity becomes the, the, um, the religion of the empire and you get special privileges if you're associated with the church. Right. right? Yeah. And that creates a whole different, now you've got like people who are okay with being nominally Christian. Sure. Um, and, and they don't even understand anything about what it means to be a Christian. They're not even really, to the story of Israel and Israel's Messiah sure. and what that means, uh, Pentecost and yeah. like the reality of communion. None of that um, was part of their formation or discipleship. Right. Okay, so this is what you have. You've got large numbers of people that identify as Christians. That kept a certain kind of uh, sense of cohesion. Okay. And then you have the Jews who lived in their own communities. Well, when the plague hit Western Europe and people started dying, um, there was tremendous panic and they were increasingly kind of desperate to figure out who to blame. Yeah. Well, the Jews were a really convenient scapegoat. So uh, I think the persecution started in the spring of 1348 outside of Narbonne, France. A group of Christians rounded up a group of Jews and just burned them in a bonfire. And then after that, they started arresting Jews and torturing them, trying to elicit confessions. So there were these wow. coerced confessions and after one particular coerced confession, it just, people went nuts and they started rioting and burning down Christian homes and businesses and in Maine, Jewish, France. Right. Uh, Jewish homes and businesses? I'm sorry? Was it Jewish homes and businesses? Christians were Jew burning Jewish, Jewish homes. Christians yeah. were burning Jewish homes and, and businesses, yeah. Wow. 
And they were, you know, Christians were the majority at this time. Right, right. Very much so. Jews were the minority. And and then uh, in Mainz, Germany, in one day, 6,000 Jews died. That was the entire Jewish community in Mainz, Germany. And I think the same thing happened in Cologne. And and I think uh, the plague probably did most of its damage within five years. But the anti-Semitism that was allowed to rise during this time, it continued for decades after this. And then about 200 thriving Jewish communities in Europe were completely annihilated. Oh, my gosh. It was like tens of thousands of people burned, killed, lynched, you know, at the hands of people who identified as Christians. Right. Right. And this is a huge uh, contrast to the early church. Um, If we go back to before Constantine and before Theodosius, you see um, in the one of the first uh, plagues of the Roman Empire, the Antonine Plague, it lasted from 165 to 180. Um, it was probably measles or smallpox. We don't yeah. really know. Um, they, they know a constellation of symptoms that point to that. But um, a lot of people would just really like treat the sick poorly. They would shun them. They would, you know, beat them, abuse them, mm. abandon them, um, try to burn them. And Christians would stay and care for them. Wow. You know, because they understood we have a salvation in Christ. Our hope is in the resurrection and in God bringing his new creation. And we're being, we're part of that. We're not afraid. Death is not the end of the story. Jesus is going to defeat death. And so, you know, we're going to love. And as a result of their care during um, that particular epidemic and then another epidemic that hit Rome, in uh, 249, okay. which was the, the plague of Cyprian, um, also maybe another like hemorrhagic virus or measles or smallpox. Um, there were tremendous numbers of conversions to wow. the church. They, they were like, who, who are you? Why did you do this for us? Right. And they really saw the love of God in, in Christians. Yeah. You know? And it's, it's kind of amazing what happens when, when you have really kind of the true gospel and um, you see the fruit of, I know you guys are doing um, a series on the Great Commission, uh, when you really disciple people to obey everything that Jesus commanded, yeah. take care of the sick. You look at Matthew 25, yeah. feed the hungry, give thirsty drink, visit the prisoner, take care of the sick. You know, you have the parable of the Good Samaritan. You have, you know, love your enemies, forgive those who persecute you. Those are the really, like, um, countercultural, yeah. radical teachings of Christ. Yeah. He, he says, I want you to teach people to obey these things. Yeah. So hard. Take up your cross. Right, right. Follow me. Yeah. Die to yourself. You know, that was not reflected when Christians lynched Jews right. in the 1340s, right? Yeah. That was not Christianity. That was tribal Christianism. Yes. yes. Right? It's good. And there's a huge difference. And I think that um, we see some of that in the United States, too, Absolutely. because I think that the Christianity that we have that is so prevalent is so mixed with nationalism right. and empire building and promoting a particular way of life, the American dream. These are all sort of um, anti, I don't know, antithetical to the gospel. Yeah. There's nothing in those value systems that are about dying to self. Right 
about serving the poor, about um, elevating the needs of the weak, you know. And and so I think if I think about it as an Asian American Christian, what um, what I see like in Acts 2 of Pentecost of the Spirit coming and putting the languages of people in each other's mouths, yeah. I mean, that is the kind of intimacy that God wants us to have yeah. across boundaries of nation and ethnic group and tribe, right? And then you have the Lord's table. Um, I think that sacramental theology is just really weak um, yeah. in so, so many of our traditions today. Right. Yeah. Um, we think that it's, it's about reflecting on my individual relationship with Jesus. He died for my sins, his body broken for me, 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 his blood given for me, 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 me. Yeah. <laughs> when really it, it is like when we sit down for communion, Eucharist, whatever you want to call it, um, it's actually an affirming, um, it's an affirmation of a heavenly reality yes. of all tongues, tribes, people, and nations gathered around the throne yes. because of the body and blood of Jesus. Yeah. So we are declaring that we are one when we take the body and the blood of Jesus yeah. in a very real way. And that sacramental ritual is supposed to then empower us for how we live in the world. Yeah. So I think as an Asian American Christian who's facing tremendous amounts of vulnerability currently, I want people who have, who are at the table, my brothers and sisters at the table who are operating positions of strength to see me yeah. and care about what I'm going through and say, what would you do? What do you do for somebody that you love who is part of your family hmm. that you, whose body you care about because my body is part of your body. Right. We are the body of Christ. What happens to me happens to you. So, um, oh, wow, I'm like rambling tangent. No, that's fantastic. <laughs> I, I was, I was thinking as you were describing the historical realities of how Christians have acted at different points, um, throughout history during plagues and pandemics and things like that. And I just kept kind of, thinking in my mind, how do we as uh, specifically Christians in America today behave more like the early church, um, all the way from Pentecost to the two plagues you mentioned, and a lot less like the church in uh, Western Europe in the 1300s and the bubonic plague and all of that. Um, it, it Does it center around for you the, the, the table and recognizing the image of God in each other and uh, recognizing the oneness in the body of Christ? Yes, absolutely. I think that it all comes down to that. You know, um, it's, it's really this amazing vision of intimacy where um, intimacy, intimacy is not supposed to exist. Yes. You know, between enemies. Right. Um, and the greatest division that we see in Scripture is between Jew and Gentile. Right. Right. And, you know, you see that tension all through the book of Acts, you know, and first Pentecost is for all Jewish believers from every nation under the earth. That's how it is, right? But they're still all Jews. Right. And then um, they're hearing they're, they're all, they live in different parts and they speak different languages and stuff. But um, then it starts to spread to Gentiles. Yeah. And they're like, 
you know, right. and it requires a special vision for Peter of this yeah. pit blanket coming right. down from heaven with all these different foods and, you know, and says, take and eat. And Peter's like, no, I've never touched anything unclean. And God's like, I don't call unclean what I've made clean. And, and, you know, we, we talk about food being such a reflection of every culture, yeah. right? And so that what's coming down is actually people groups hmm. that God is now saying, don't call these unclean. I'm going to include them in my vision of the new creation, new earth. And, and, you know, but this is all like out of Israel's Messiah. That's the one true living God. Um, and, and telling the Gentiles, actually, you are a Gentile, but I'm inviting you in, you know? Yeah. And, and so it's like this whole radically new way of forming community. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I'm probably not going to do this justice, but Ivan Illich, he was um, a Catholic thinker. He he wrote about conspiratio, um, and it is basically like, uh, and it's about the Eucharistic gathering. Okay. Um, he talks about it's not really easily translated into English because it sounds like conspiracy, right. but it's not. It's really more spirit. Okay. And when you sit down, um, he was he was talking about how it was expressed in the mouth-to-mouth kiss, the holy kiss. Mm-hmm. It's actually, we each bring the spirit breath mm. into, like, when we gather. Yeah. And each person contributes um, the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit lives in each of us. We are all the temple of God. Yeah. He he has chosen to do this and made it possible because of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Yes. And so when we get together, it is this um, sense that we are now a spiritual community, a community of one spirit, each person contributing their own aspect or reflection of that. You yeah. know? Um, oh, that's beautiful. I, yeah. I think, you know, the most powerful communion times for me have actually been at our church. Our church is a little over five years old and um, a handful of times over the years before COVID, we would do communion uh, around these big tables. And so we just put, you know, really long tables kind of all stacked together on each side. So two really kind of long banquet tables on each side of the auditorium. And then anybody that wanted to, we would dismiss people to the sides and they would gather all around the table. And then we'd pass the elements around and, um, we would ask everyone to look in each other's eyes, you know, and uh, as you as you took the elements together and realized that, um, you know, no, no matter our differences, no matter the things that the world tells us divides us, that we are mm-hmm. one body in Christ. Um, right. And it, that that actually was hugely influential into um, the the kind of vision statement we have at our church, which is. Um, a place where everyone has a seat at the table and everyone can experience the radical love of Jesus. And mm-hmm. um, I think that, you know, when we first talked, you you mentioned this idea of um, that, that the world and us, that, that we really are comfortable, maybe most comfortable when we're putting people into categories, you know, um, and we mm-hmm. are classifying them by one specific feature one specific characteristic. And then a lot of times we label them in a positive way or in a negative way based on one tribe or one feature that they have or tribe they belong to or whatever. Um, how is that 
how do how do we fight against that as the body of Christ as Christians? Yeah, I think that I mean in, the simplest way to answer that is just one word: love. Hmm. Um, but love works itself out in these really very specific ways. Yeah. As Christians and as the church have a unique opportunity to bridge gaps um, and uh, to realize that we need each other, you know, yeah. um, regardless of our age, race, gender, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, whatever, like we can, yeah. we are most fully representative of the body of Christ when we are together, not when we are right. hierarchied, you know, or uh, separated right. or whatever. So that was awesome. Judy, I so appreciate your time and um, you just sharing your experiences with us, but also so much of your wisdom. Uh, it just means a lot to me and I know to our church as well. Um, before we close, would you mind praying and uh, kind of closing us out with a prayer? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Father, thank you so much for calling us into this amazing new family that you're creating. You really are calling us into a radically new way of uh, doing community. Father, I pray for wisdom for each of us as we navigate this world that has been so uh, defined and shaped by segregation of all kinds, I pray that you would help us to have a vision of each time we, we sit down to take communion of who is at the table with us. If we are all seated in the heavenly realms in Christ and we are all seated around in, at this table, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, rich, uh, powerful, weak, targeted, uh, untargeted. Help us become a family, Lord, that honors you. Help us be like those early Christians that knew and understood the gospel, to take up their cross, um, to serve others, to love radically, uh, fearlessly. And uh, we just thank you for your, your grace, your spirit, and for one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks again, Judy. Can't wait till we talk again. You're welcome, Zach. All right, take care. You too.